Hi everyone, welcome to episode eight of eight of this pilot season. You all have been on a journey with me as I dipped my toe into the water of this podcast format and I am so grateful for it, thank you. I'm recording today this final episode of season one from San Francisco. I am recharged and refreshed after vacation. I was gone a week if you've been following along hiking and exploring and Yellowstone and Grand Teton. And as I was there, I was thinking about awe, the science of awe. And the reason for this is in some ways obvious. I'm in the middle of nature and these you know glorious, wonderful national parks. But this particular subject, I had been just a few months ago doing a bunch of studying up on the science behind awe. And this is for a big project I've been working on that I can't wait to tell you about it. I can't just yet, but just for now, the sake of this conversation, the science behind awe and of course being in that glorious setting, just so awestruck. And that's so similar to what we do as people who make art is the connection I want to draw here. So just to share a little bit about the science behind awe that I was thinking of, two psychologists are known for really the landmark paper on this. This was in 2003. It's, I hope I don't butcher their names. I think it's Docker, Keltner, and Jonathan Haidt. And what they say is that awe expands our perception of time. It helps people feel connected to others. And awe even makes us more generous. They say awe is central to the experience of religion, politics, nature, and art. That's a direct quote. Final two, nature and art, is exactly what I'm talking about right here. And I just love how nature and art are grouped together as pillars of awe-inspiring experiences. Their paper goes on to talk about being a part of something bigger than ourselves. I think that feels very natural to the definition of awe. And nature provides that. The majesty of the Grand Tetons provides that. Astonishing views at Yellowstone with just so much vastness of scenery provides that. And also 80 or 90 people performing on stage together provides that. Fantastic art, however you define that for yourself, provides that. So this idea of awe and just connecting the nature bit of it with the art bit of it, just really, I was like feeling the feelings on this, y'all. And I'll wrap up by saying there was a follow-up to this landmark paper. This comes from UC Berkeley, Dr. Alan Sommer there. He was summarizing the research saying, quote, if you've hiked among giant sequoias, stood in front of the Taj Mahal, or observed a particularly virtuosic musical performance, you may have experienced the mysterious and complex emotion known as awe, end quote. So this feeling of splendor and wonder and awe really filled me up this past week, if you can't tell. And now I'm back. I'm doing this final recording, or at least final for now for this season. Now that I'm back, I've started working with two new clients this week as I'm recording this as well, and looking ahead to the fall and into next year, there's several really cool projects in the works that, again, I just can't wait to share with you. And today we are talking about the four deadly sins of toxic work cultures, so we'll get into that later. We're also talking about not holding back, being yourself, showing up as your full self, really hitting, I will say in this final episode, some gendered issues we do not talk about publicly in the arts so much. I feel like I'm asked a lot of these questions not publicly quite often or have conversations with 
friends and colleagues, but here we are putting it out there in this format. So it's a little raw and vulnerable today. And that's okay. Being yourself in a way that feels authentic to who you are, having the confidence and energy that comes from that, to me, that feels like a really good way to end this season. So one more time, I want to thank our sponsors, Descript and LoomCube, for making this season possible. One more time this season, let's hit it. I'm Aubrey Bergauer, and welcome to my podcast. If we haven't met, I'm known in the arts world for being customer-centric, data-obsessed, and for growing revenue. The arts are my vehicle to make the change I want to see in this world, like creating places of belonging, pursuing gender and racial equality, developing high-performing teams of leaders, and leveraging technology to elevate our work. In this show, I'm answering your questions on how to build the vibrant future we know is possible, both for our institutions and for ourselves as offstage administrators and leaders. To submit a question, send a voice recording to hello at aubreybergauer.com. Aubrey, I have a question. How do you handle turnover? So my department has had 100% turnover in the last year. And apparently that's a big thing in fundraising everywhere. That's been one of the most challenging things for me. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing and nobody knows what's happening. Our CEO is great, but has like a million other things like running the orchestra to do. And I guess how to manage that and, you know, relationships with new people and stuff like that. Oh, this question is so real. So much turnover happening over the last six months, year. And a few things are coming to mind for me on this. The first is I want to share some recent research I came across on toxic work cultures. This comes from Adam Grant. What he says and what the research found is that toxic work cultures are the biggest driver of turnover. He was sharing this on his work-life podcast for anybody who's a fan of him or his work. I personally can't get enough of all the work and research he shares. And this research that he was talking about toxic work cultures came out during the last few months, during the great resignation that we're experiencing right now. I don't know if that's what's happening there for you. I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, toxic work cultures are the biggest driver of turnover, more than burnout and more than low pay. This is not to say that we don't need to have a conversation about the underpaid status of our staff members. So please don't hear me saying that. However, more than burnout, more than low pay, which, wow, those are real things happening in all of our lives right now. More than that, though, toxic work culture is the top driver of turnover. Okay, again, that's new research coming right out of the last several months or so. And Adam Grant goes on to share what he defines as the four deadly sins of culture. So you can decide, everybody listening, decide if any of these sound familiar to you. The first is an organization that tolerates results over relationships. So anybody who knows me knows that I believe in building teams that know how to execute. I believe in results. I prioritize results. However, where it becomes toxic is when organizations prioritize or tolerate, in his words, results over relationships, meaning bad actors who get things done are tolerated. Selfish actions, but yet they get things done and get results are tolerated. And not just tolerated, but offered promotions, offered pathways to more leadership roles. That is the number one sin of the four deadly sins of toxic work culture. Number two, he says, is a mediocrity culture. Again, you can decide if this sounds familiar. Tolerating or promoting, rewarding 
being liked over getting results. I feel like this one I probably see at arts organizations more if I had to choose, but that's my own experience and anecdotal take on this. So another way to look at this is the Peter Principle. If anybody's heard of the Peter Principle, it's saying people get promoted to the like basically to their level of incompetence, like mediocre results type people get promoted just to the level beyond what they're able to handle. And so that's how we get some less than effective managers and leadership roles, I would say. Okay, so that's the number two deadly sin of toxic culture, mediocrity culture. Number three is what Adam Grant calls a bureaucracy culture. All rules, no risks. He says this means new ideas are threats to the status quo. This one also, to me, I definitely see this a lot as somebody who's built their brand on bringing change, bringing different results. We've talked in previous episodes about some risk-taking and how do you balance that within a culture, a bureaucracy culture, in its most extreme form is all rules, no risks. And yes, new ideas are a threat to the status quo. I think in broad strokes, that probably applies to many of our organizations. The fourth deadly sin of culture, according to Adam Grant, is anarchy. So it's the opposite of bureaucracy. It's all risks, but no rules. No one learns from the past. It kind of devolves into pure chaos. So you can see how these go two and two in terms of like different sides of the coin, maybe. So just to reiterate them, an organization that tolerates results over relationships, the opposite of that, the mediocrity culture tolerating being liked over results, bureaucracy culture, all rules, no risks, and anarchy culture, all risks, no rules. And I don't know, again, if any of those apply to your organization there, but I just, when I was hearing that research recently, thought, wow, there's definitely some things that feel familiar to me. So I wanted to share that here in case it's helpful to you as well. The other thing I want to say as I was listening to your question is that, wow, the turnover in development specifically is so real. At any given moment, I can't remember the exact stat on this, but development professionals, many of you may have heard this, I'm guessing, but at any given moment, it is something like half of all nonprofits are looking for a head of development. It, I can't remember if that's exactly the right number, but it is something quite extreme that so many nonprofits at any given moment are looking for a head of fundraising. And that status from pre-pandemic, that's not even now with all the turnover we're seeing. So I just want to say you're not alone in experiencing a lot of turnover, especially as somebody working in fundraising. And the last thing coming to mind on this one is, and this is work for me too, where I'm going to, what I'm going to say here is to really focus on a mental shift. It is so easy to say, wow, this is bananas, which is true. You can acknowledge that. Yes, there's a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of unknowns and just sort of maybe disorganization when we are down staff members. And so it's fine to say that and acknowledge that, of course, but instead of dwelling in that, the mental shift that I wanted to talk about here is to shift to say, what's the opportunity here? And to me, there are a few things that are opportunities amidst a very bizarre or challenging time, like 100% staff turnover on your team. So the first is, if you're not the hiring manager on that team, can you be the welcome wagon when those roles are filled? Can you be the one to unofficially onboard somebody? I, there's a whole lot to be said on the lack of onboarding that happens at our organizations, which I think contributes to the turnover we see later. So a whole other topic area there we could get into. But 
If you're not the one hiring, can you be that welcome wagon that unofficially onboards them, welcomes them, sets the culture in many ways that you want to see going forward, or at least as much as you can in your role and scope? The second opportunity, I talk about this a lot in the online courses I lead, which is assumed authority. This is something I first heard Cheryl Sandberg talk about years ago, but assumed authority is taking on more in your role, not necessarily to become overworked, that's not the goal, but taking on more because that's what the moment allows for. So when you're down staff members, it is a prime opportunity for that. Somebody has to get the work done. When somebody's missing or multiple roles are empty, the work still has to be done. So it's a real opportunity to start taking on more that grows your scope, grows your authority, and it's assumed authority because you're not asking permission. You're seeing a need, oh, this thing needs to be done, this report needs to be run, this donor needs to be thanked, whatever that looks like for your team, assume the authority and just do it. And that has really helped my career in many ways. And it's helped, according to research, helps a lot of people grow their scope. And especially as a woman, I got to say, those opportunities are not always handed to us. So when we see the opportunity and are able to step up and fill a need, not in a land grabbing way, but in a benevolent way that serves our organization, it really can work well for us. Somebody has to pick up the slack is what I'm trying to say. And that equals opportunity for us. A uh, third area of opportunity, I think, for situations like this is if you are hiring and a person responsible for hiring, it is a great time and moment to reassess what needs to happen. How do we practice a more equitable search process? I am becoming more and more bullish, maybe is the word, on our hiring practices. And the more I see it, especially in the last many months where there is so much hiring going on, I see time and again the way this is so systemically broken. And by broken, I mean, let's call it biased, gender biased, in many cases racist, in many cases oppressive. And I will say, though, when I see these things happening, it's probably always unintentional, I think. I don't know. I, I just, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to assume malintent. I'm trying to say that I see a problem in this business with our hiring practices. And I see great talent being sidelined because the process wasn't set up to elicit who has the skills needed for each job. Instead, we're going on gut feel and things like that. So if you are in a position of hiring, these moments where I know it's so hard because I've been there, when you just need to fill the role because you're just trying to keep your head above water and you're team is trying to keep their heads above water. I know it's so difficult, but to take an extra beat in that moment to think, okay, what can we do differently to make sure this process is equitable and fair in order to get the best people on the bus that we need? It's a real opportunity for you as a hiring manager is what I'm trying to say and worth it in the long run to take that moment for that. So all of this is very hard in the mire of it. I know all of these different things I've said, but I offer that just to say, if we can have a little bit of a mental shift even amongst lots of turnover and open roles and picking up the slack and all of that. If we can have that mental shift, it serves us more than just wallowing in how bananas it can sound in the moment. So I hope that helps. Thank you for the question. Good luck with all the turnover. I know it's hard. I actually emailed this to you, Aubrey, but I'm curious. This might be useful. My struggle I have as a fairly informal person, you know, I don't like wearing suits and I rarely wear makeup. How do you continue to be yourself if you are not this buttoned up individual? You know what I mean? This is a great question. I really appreciate this one. 
What do you do if you don't like wearing suits and doing hair and makeup and all of that? So much of quote unquote professionalism is white and male dominated, hands down, period. Even, even for these gender norms that are put onto women, it is white and male dominated. What do I mean by that? What looks professional? Hair in a certain way, makeup in a certain way, dress in a certain way. It is so specific and so narrow, and those standards were by and large determined by men, and specifically white men, and that is because our workplaces have been dominated by this for so long, for decades and decades now. So the good news in this is that is changing, I think, before our eyes right now, what is expected to fit the definition of professional. You don't need to conform, but you need to be aware. That, I think, is my advice on this. I think the pandemic helped all this a lot. You know, there's so many people talking about these very specific gender norms. I've heard so many people say, I'm never wearing high heels again, for example, right? And those kind of shifts, even though maybe minor sounding, are shifts in the expectations. So this idea of what needs to happen, the definition of professionalism is shifting very slowly. Let's be honest here, very slowly, I think, but it is beginning to shift. So there's that. So given all of that, I believe people should show up with how they're comfortable. That helps us be more confident. That helps us do our best work. Maybe comfortable doesn't mean you're wearing your Zoom sweatpants and Uggs to the meeting in the office, but is there another way to be comfortable and reflect yourself in a way that feels true and authentic to you that does allow you to show up as your best, right? That's the question I'm asking. And I think if we do that, show up in a way, again, that we're comfortable, we're confident, the world does need to catch up. So do we need to be clean? Yes. Do we need to be groomed? You know, who defines groomed? So that's a tricky word, right? But I think that's where these definitions are, are shifting. Oh, even as it comes out of my mouth, I think I don't know that I have all the answers. I'm sort of just riffing out loud on all of this right now. But I just think these gender norms have to shift. And I think the pandemic has helped with that, too. The other thing we need to do is reflect the culture that we want in others. So this sort of goes back to the first question, like, can we be that person in the office that's helping welcome people who look different, dress different, don't fit that very, again, narrow definition of quote unquote professionalism. Like, let's throw that out the window and instead praise people publicly for their good work, even when they don't fit a definition of what traditionally looked like they would fit in at our organizations. So again, I do not have all the answers here. I'm just trying to answer this question the best I know how. I'll add to this. Somebody asked me a similar question to this not too long ago. It was a very tall woman. And kind of the version of the question for them was, I'm very tall. I have this overbearing presence. How do I take up space and look confident when I'm already such a big presence? And all I could think of is a tall man would never ask about this, right? And I'm trying to remember it, at least not in my experience, has a man ever asked me about what he should be wearing to work? So this is somehow so gendered of a question that women are thinking about, you know, do I do the hair and the makeup and the clothes and the heels and all that? And so much whiteness to that too. So I just want to name, this is very gendered. This question is very gendered. It's not lost on me that I've had multiple women ask about this. So I, so thank you for sending the question in because I hope other people listening have something in here that resonates with them and they identify with as well. To put some research to all of this, I'll offer that research says we're evaluated in terms of first impressions. This is specifically, we are evaluated first and foremost on if we are trustworthy. 
hopefully this helps alleviate any kind of fears or concerns for anyone. It's less about are they wearing the right thing, quote unquote, and how one looks and more about how do I carry myself with confidence and purpose? I was just saying earlier, can we show up in a way that we feel confident? Purposeful is so compelling, so much more compelling than any blazer on the planet. And I say this as somebody who really loves a strong blazer game, okay? But so much more than any of that is confidence, purpose, authenticity. How do I take up physical space? All of this research is coming from Amy Cuddy. She's a psychologist and professor at the Harvard Business School. Her TED Talk is super famous. So if anybody's seen the TED Talk on kind of doing the Superman poses or like stand in the bathroom in the Superman pose for two minutes before going into an interview, like if you've heard that kind of stuff, that is from Amy Cuddy's research. And she is the one that her research shows again and again. I just want to repeat it because it's so important. For first impressions, first and foremost, we are evaluated on if we are trustworthy. So everything I said about these narrow definitions of professionalism and what do we look like and how do we physically show up, again, if we're comfortable in our own skin and dressing, I think, is a tool to help us be most comfortable and confident in our own skin. If we do that, if we take up physical space, all of that is how we project our natural confidence that we're feeling within and purpose. And that is more important to a first impression with somebody else. So I hope that's helpful. To me, that makes a lot of sense. When we are naturally showing up as ourself, however we like our hair and our makeup or not makeup and clothes, that breeds that and sets that path for us. So the last thing I'll say, Amy Cuddy talks about not fake it till you make it, but she famously, I think this is maybe even the last line or one of the last lines of her TED Talk. She says, fake it till you become it. And this is specifically with physical posture. So we say so much that physical things start mentally. And she says in terms of this conversation, confidence, showing up in a way that we want to project our knowledge and expertise, she says it starts physically. So sit up straight. Don't hunch over. I'm the worst at hunching over. Sit up straight. Try to take up physical space. When I speak, I make a lot of gestures. I'm a hand talker naturally, but I've learned from her and other coaches, public speaking coaches, lessons, that kind of thing, that really taking up the physical space is the first step. And our mental disposition follows that. So when in doubt, you know, sit up straight, roll those shoulders back, be confident and own it because that is who you are and you've got this. All of that is way more than anything about superficial appearance. So I hope this is helpful. What a great question because I know, I know other women are asking this too. So thank you so much for it. Now we're going to pause a second and hear from our sponsor. This is a brand I personally choose to work with and I know arts organizations can benefit from. So I've been creating content for a while now, first as manager of audience development at the Seattle Opera, then later as the head of marketing at the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival, and now as an individual creator and working with organizations on their content strategies too. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that the program that was a total game changer for me is Descript. I learned about Descript earlier this year when I was invited to join the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator Program and I loved it so much because I'm not an editor, yet Descript makes editing as easy as editing a Google Doc. I'm not even kidding. Now I use Descript for all of my videos, audio content, Instagram reels, and even recording this right now. I recommend Descript for any individual or marketing team, and I'll drop the link in the show notes for you. Thank you to Descript for supporting the business side of the arts. I'm really grateful. 
I think this will be a, maybe a quicker question, sort of gendered perhaps, but especially in previous career situations, I've had situations where I've been speaking and uh, oftentimes male colleagues will interrupt me, even in public spaces where there are many people around. And I just wanted to know if you have any ideas for how to respond in that situation. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is another one that I got to say, men don't ask me this. So thank you for being so honest and asking this. What do you do when male colleagues interrupt you in speaking? A few things come to mind on this one as well. I'm going to cite Adam Grant's research again. He says, quote, you are not a high performer if you don't elevate others, period. That's the quote. So for everybody listening to this, male, female, non-binary, however you identify, we have got to elevate others. We must elevate our coworkers. It's so important to elevate others who we come in contact with professionally and personally. You're not a high performer if you don't do that. And I believe that more and more, just how critical it is. I think that really matches everything else that we've said so far today in this episode. So that's the first thing. So what does this mean? How does this play out? When we're not the one being interrupted and we see this happening, go to bat for that person. It is so much easier to defend somebody else than ourselves. There's a bunch of reasons why that is. There's science behind that, psychology behind that. And we can absolutely do it without being mean or rude or abrasive. So when we see our colleagues being interrupted by somebody else, we can speak up and say, hey, can we just go back to that? I just want to hear what she was saying. Or, oh, can we just have her finish that thought? I really was hoping to catch the end of that. You know, whatever that looks like, we can absolutely, again, speak up without being rude or mean or abrasive. So can we please commit to each other to do that, to defend our colleagues, speak up during meetings and be that ally? And if we all can just commit to doing that, that right there is going to make a big difference. I'm sure there are some people listening to this and thinking, oh, yeah, this happens to me. And then there's some people thinking, oh, I hadn't really thought about this before. And that's OK. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, that's OK. But I hope that now that we're talking about it, it's something that we can't unsee. That is my wish for this question being raised so that we can do something about it. And again, be those colleagues that say, no, I really do want to hear that point she was making, or I'm so curious, how does this story end or whatever it is, you know, be that person that really helps set that person up to be able to finish. Same thing goes for, I'm, I'm sure many of us have seen this play out. You know, somebody has an idea. This is gendered. So often if, if a woman has an idea, then maybe it's not given time, credibility, space in the meeting. And then somebody else, generally a man, comes in and says, oh, you know what I was thinking? offers a version of the same idea. And then suddenly that's the one that gets praise, credit. That's what we're running with. And these things are microaggressions. Happening one-off is not the end of the world. That's for sure. But when it happens a lot, it changes opportunities that people see, who gets offered the promotion, who doesn't, who gets invited to the next meeting about that topic and who doesn't. So it's very important. This is another one. When we see that happening, please speak up on behalf of our colleagues. It's one of the most, I think, empowering things we can do. And we, again, it goes right back to you are not a high performer if you don't elevate others. That is how this plays out. Okay. I just want to go back to hear her idea or, oh, that's a great idea. You know, that's just like what so-and-so just said. How interesting. Again, doesn't have to be rude or mean. Okay. Last thing coming to mind on this is I got to hand it to Kamala Harris. She is the best at preventing, or I say, I can't say preventing. People try to interrupt her. She's the best at 
putting the kibosh on that right away. So the best example I can give of this, and this is not meant to be a political statement. This is meant to be talking about this specific issue of men interrupting women. But if anybody remembers, leading up to the 2020 election, the vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, the way this played out, if you remember, Pence kept interrupting her. This happens in debates. So again, this is not a political statement, but he kept interrupting and she was a masterclass and how to, when there's not somebody there to defend you and jump in, how to be the one that defends yourself. And she would just say, excuse me, I'm speaking. Not too mean, not too nice, not too smiling. I'm sorry that these are the things that women have to think about, but wow, she nailed it. And he would continue. And then she would continue. I'm speaking. And I even remember I remember watching it in the moment and thinking, wow, what she is doing is masterful because of all of the barriers put on women and how we move in the world. And again, she's not mean. She's not too nice. She's not too smiley, but she is commanding attention and space and authority. Excuse me, I'm speaking. And the commentators afterwards is what I was going to say. I remember them saying 100% she practiced how to handle being interrupted. And I was very taken by that of right, this is something we can practice. It's going to keep happening. So, you know, for better or for worse, women, we have opportunity to practice defending ourselves. Excuse me, I, I would like to finish this. And I don't know. I know that there can be backlash for that. So I don't offer this as a mandate for women. I offer this as a suggestion on when we do want to speak up and defend ourselves, something that we can say, you know, excuse me, I'm speaking. Excuse me, I like to finish this thought one moment let me just finish this sentence here and i don't know if somebody can't handle that it's pretty clear to me these are people i don't want to be working with especially if it's a repeated offense like i said one-off things these happen it's the the problem with microaggressions is when they build up over time so be people who can stand up for ourselves but also definitely go to bat for those colleagues defend our colleagues i hope we cannot unsee it now that we've seen it, so to speak, heard it in this podcast format. So thank you for the question. All of these questions today, wow, so important, so vulnerable, so real. I hope this helps us all aspire to be better colleagues, to bring the change that we need in this industry, including how we advocate for those around us. It is go time on this issue and all of the others we've covered, not just in today's episode, but in this season, and it cannot wait. Thanks again for listening, for sending the question in. Hey, Offstagers. Okay, you're here listening to this podcast where I'm answering questions. And one of the questions I get asked often is how to apply these topics, ideas, and action items to your own organization. If you've been listening to the podcast and thinking, how can we do this more effectively at my own organization? Or how can we hear more specific insights that apply directly and uniquely to my own organization or situation, I'd love to hear from you. Working with me isn't for everyone, I have to say that. I tell potential clients all the time, I'm not a match for them. You have to be ready to think about doing things differently in order to produce different results. But if you're listening to this podcast, that's a pretty good indication that you're interested in a way forward that helps build the vibrant future your organization needs and deserves. Contact me at hello at aubreybergauer.com for more information or to talk it through. Hello at aubreybergauer.com. Hope to hear from you soon. That's all for today, folks. Not just for this episode, but for this whole season. 
Thanks so much for listening to this pilot project experiment. I'd love to hear from you if anything was particularly helpful and keep up with more content like this by following me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter at Aubrey Bergauer. Definitely hit that follow button to subscribe to this podcast as I have some ideas for future seasons we're already cooking up. Meanwhile, if you like what you heard here one last time, will you please leave a review or rating? I and others will be so grateful for your help and support in that. Thanks again. See you next time for season two on the Offstage Mic. The Offstage Mic was produced by me, Aubrey Bergauer, and made possible by Descript. I used Descript to record, edit, set audio levels, and make the trailer, as well as the video teasers on social media. I couldn't have done it without them, and I recommend any marketing team or individual creator should definitely use this tool too. Thanks again to Descript for making this project and many others I've done possible. This is a production of Changing the Narrative.